morning, everyone. Thank you, Drew, and everyone else who's been involved this morning. I, uh, I think it's fair to say that we live in a pretty judgmental culture. Many of uh, the most popular television programs over the last few years thrive on judgment. So people are judged on whether or not they have a voice or the voice, or whether or not they possess the X factor, or have got talent. Celebrities are judged on whether they can strictly dance or skate on ice. But that's, that's not really what I mean by a judgmental culture. By and large, the kind of punters and the celebrities who appear on those programs, they put themselves out there to be judged. They expect it. They invited it. It, it kind of goes with the territory. And Anyway, those shows are about competing against others and allowing a panel of judges or experts to determine, well, who is better or who is the best at doing a particular thing, whether it's singing or dancing or skating. That's not what I mean by a judgmental culture. When I say we live in one of those, I'm referring to this tendency to pass comment on others who generally don't ask for it or deserve it or want it. When we look at what someone's doing, or what they're wearing, or not wearing, where they live, what car they drive, the behavior of their kids. We look at people's lifestyle choices. We look at their preferences at all kinds of different levels. And we say something or at least we think it. And whatever way we look at it or justify it or explain it, we all know that at that moment, we're being pretty judgmental. And it happens day in and day out in all kinds of contexts and walks of life. It seems to be part and parcel of life. It's just a natural human inclination. Sure, everybody does it. We've judged Drew this morning and how he's led the service. Judged the songs we've sang. We just kind of do it. And then we come to our text for today. Beginning in Matthew 7. And the very first three words that we read and hear are these, do not judge. And so immediately you realize a couple of things. One, well, this is going to be rather interesting. (laughs) Pretty relevant. And secondly, this is potentially personal and quite challenging. For anyone uh, who's visiting today, we as a, and it's great to see you, thank you for joining us. But we as a church are about two-thirds of our way through a series called World Changer, based on the so-called Sermon on the Mount, uh, that speech or that collection of speeches that's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that has changed and continues to change our world, delivered by the greatest world changer who ever lived, Jesus Christ, and spoken to a community of world changers, i.e. us. 
And in this speech or in this sermon, Jesus affirms the identity of this new kingdom community. And our identity, if you've been following this series, is we are the called, we are the blessed, we are the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. That's who Jesus says we are. And he talks about how we have been transformed from the inside out because the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And that is a gift of God. That is a work of grace. It's not about us. It's about what God does in us. But we've also been, or we're also being, formed, we've said, from the outside in. And so we've been given practices, spiritual disciplines, holy habits, that shape us. Practices such as, and certainly in this sermon it raises three, practices such as giving, praying, and fasting, which create generosity, intimacy, and dependency. And as a result, we as kingdom people and as kingdom dwellers, we then live differently. When you've been transformed from the inside out, when you're being formed from the outside in, you live differently, says Jesus. And so you love your enemy. You pray for those who persecute you. You forgive those who sin against you. You don't stockpile treasure on earth. You store treasure in heaven. And then as we thought about last week, you do not worry. You do not become acutely anxious about what you eat and drink and wear. Why? Well, because you've got different priorities. Your priorities have shifted. They've changed. And also... Why do you not worry about these things? Because you trust in your heavenly father who's going to look after you. I suppose the question as we keep journeying through this series is this, how how is this reflective of us as a church community? Do we love our enemies? Do we forgive those who sin against us? Are we focused on the right places? Do we trust God with all of our lives? And this morning as we we continue listening and engaging with this, I said last week, radical and revolutionary world-changing speech, we come across another key characteristic of kingdom people. And it's this, they do not judge. This is what sets us apart. This is what makes us different, distinctive. We don't judge. We're going to read what Jesus said, and I don't know about you, but even as I introduce this and say all of that, I kind of agree with this comment that I read during the week, that there is hardly any commandment of Jesus that is more consistently broken and neglected. So, let's read what Jesus says. Well, we stand together for the public reading of God's word. It's page 971, if you want to follow it in the Red Pew Bibles. Do not judge. 
do not judge. Or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Grab a seat. What I, uh, what I want to do is I want to start at the end with that last verse, verse 6, which in many ways doesn't really seem to fit with the previous five verses. It's a bit random. And it is a difficult saying. And I'll be really upfront with you and say that it has led to lots of confusion and lots of debate. Remember, you know all the wee subheadings that many of us have in the Bibles we use, those weren't there in the original. Kind of somebody else has come along and, and broke them up into these sections. So although verse 6 is attached to verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, when you read it, it, it does seem a bit like, what, what has that verse got to do with those verses? I'm not going to say a lot about verse 6, other than make the point that what it appears to reveal, what it appears to reveal here, here, <laughs> is that there are some people who will just not get or never get the teaching of Jesus. That no matter how profoundly significant, important, and valuable this teaching and the message of Jesus is, there are those for whom it's all pointless. It's irrelevant. It's worthless. Their minds are shut. And no matter what you say, it's not going to resonate. It's not going to break through. It's not going to make a difference. Now, how do you determine who, who those people are and therefore avoid wasting your time? I have no idea. And at what point, to pick up a similar idea elsewhere in Scripture, at what point do you shake the dust off your feet and, and move on? I have no clue. But let me echo a thought from William Barclay based on this verse and on his brilliant little commentary on Matthew's gospel. Here's what he says, reflecting on this verse. He says this, it's impossible to talk to some people about Jesus, but it is always possible to show men Christ. The weakness of the church lies not in lack of Christian arguments, but in lack of Christian lives. Now that's pretty strong. And I must admit, the first time I read it when I was preparing for this morning, I, I reacted to it. I thought, hang on a wee minute, that, that, that's, that's pretty harsh. And yet, the more I thought about it, and particularly in light of this Sermon on the Mount, I quickly realized that so much of what this world-changing speech is about is how we live, and not just about how we speak. I know words are important, 
And what we profess to believe with our mouths matters. Know that. Convinced about that. But if those words are not backed up by how we live day by day, how we live 24-7, then we might as well share these sacred thoughts with dogs and toss our priceless words to pigs. How are we getting on living this life as this kingdom community? Right, let's go back to verse 1. Now apparently around the time whenever Jesus first delivered this teaching about judging others, uh, these words and these ideas were actually relatively familiar to the first listeners. The other rabbis of that time did warn people constantly about judging others. One of their sayings apparently included this, he who judges his neighbor favorably will be judged favorably by God. This was rabbinical teaching at this time. Plus, they also taught that there were six great works which brought a person credit in this world and profit in the world to come. Here are the six great works that were taught by rabbis of this time. Study, visiting the sick, hospitality, devotion and prayer, education of children in the law, and thinking the best of other people. In other words, picking up on on number six there, kindliness in how we judge others is nothing less than a sacred duty. That's what was taught. And so Jesus, whenever he he stood up and shared this sermon, he wasn't introducing a new concept. This didn't kind of come from left field. Wasn't it nobody had heard anything like this before? This connected with people. This rang true. It made sense. And I want to suggest it still does make sense. When, When we hear it, do not judge, although it may be really difficult to live out and practice and flesh out, we all go, yeah, it makes so much sense. But as I say, it's so hard. Whenever you live in such a judgmental culture. So hard. And therefore, Jesus needed, I believe, to highlight it and stress its importance and place in kingdom living. You see, having just realigned our priorities, which we looked at last week, having just realigned our priorities, where he said, listen, what is is our priority as kingdom people? Seek first. Here's your primary concern. Seek first God's kingdom. So having realigned our priorities... The first thing that Jesus teaches that is out of sync with kingdom seekers is whenever they judge others. Now, as we delve into this a bit deeper, I do want to give you three reasons why none of us should ever judge. But before we go there, let me tease this out a little more because after hearing those first three words, do not judge, are we saying, and and, as I've tried to prepare for it, I've realized there's actually so much in this. And so I'm not going to cover everything and don't judge me, sad. Uh, are we saying you should never pass any kind of judgment? Well, obviously, that's not what we're saying. 
because then it would be wrong to ever sit on a jury and render a verdict. It would be wrong for an employer to give a job to one person over another because they've had to make some kind of judgment call as to who gets a certain position. Be wrong for a teacher to ever exclude a pupil for the good of the rest of the class based on a judgment call and dialogue with others. Whatever Jesus meant here in Matthew 7, he can't have meant that we're never to pass judgment in any sense at any time. Plus, and I'm sure there are someone or there are some people here who are thinking about that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul, writing to the local believers in Corinth, says that those who are spiritual should do what? Who can tell me? Those who are spiritual should judge all things. So, what's the story? Well, in Matthew 7, what Jesus is specifically addressing and warning against is judging other people condemning other people, criticizing other people, passing some kind of negative comment about other people that's unfair, it's unjustified, it's unqualified, and it's unnecessary. Peterson's version of of this verse in the message I find really helpful here. Here's how he puts it. Don't pick on people, jump on their faults, or jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. And in verse 2, he goes on to put it like this, that critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. This is brilliant. You see, the all things that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians, the all things that we are to judge, is to do with things like truth and error. It's about making wise choices. It's about making good decisions. Plus the word for judging these kind of things, these kind of situations, is probably better understood as evaluation or discernment. It's why if you use the New Living Translation, 1 Corinthians 2.15 actually reads, not let those who are spiritual judge all things, but what that it reads in that particular version is, those who are spiritual can evaluate all things. The Bible definitely does teach us as Christians to discern and to evaluate, to test and to appraise. But when we relate and apply those words to people, The danger is that discernment and evaluation can quickly and subtly bleed into judgment if we're not careful. Where all of a sudden we find we're we're pointing the finger. We're becoming critical, past remarkable, actually quite personal. Where we condemn. Where we ultimately play God. So Jesus is specific here. This directly relates to judging others. We shouldn't do it. Why? Three reasons. The first is, we never know the whole facts or the whole person. We never know the whole facts or the whole person. Again, going back to one of the the early rabbinical kind of thoughts and views on this. Do not judge a man until you yourself have come into his circumstances or situation. We can never fully know what someone else is going through. 
We don't know the temptations that someone else is feeling. We don't know the pressures they're under. We don't know what they're wrestling with. Yeah, of course, they may put up a front, but we all know, and I mean, Scripture is really, again, so clear in this. We all know how prone we are to judge people by outward appearances. And And so we look at people, And whenever you judge people in outward appearances, you're heading down a really dangerous road. We don't and we can't know everything. Probably never will. And so rather than judge a person based on what we think or on what we have assumed, and I know it's an obvious thing to say, rather than judge them, pray for them. Believe the best about a person rather than assuming the worst. And when you are tempted to pass a comment about another human being, when you're tempted to pass a comment, and, and we all do it, I, I must admit, I've, as I've kind of been preparing for this, I've just been so conscious of this in my own life. So conscious of it. But when you're tempted to pass a comment about another human being, then based on this, this, this acrostic, which I think R.T. Kendall came up with, and I've shared it before, think about whether you really need to say what you're about to say. Do I need to say this about that person? Is what I'm about to say necessary? Will it encourage them? Will it edify them? Will it empower them? Will it dignify the person? You know, we don't know the whole facts. So don't judge. But we also don't know the whole person. Because back to that verse in 1 Samuel 16 that does talk about where we as individuals look on the outward appearance, it then goes on to say, God sees the heart. Therefore, he's the one who's placed to pass judgment, not us. But another one of the dangers here is that we tend to judge meaning and motives. Whenever you do that, that is asking for disaster. You see, we don't always know what people mean or what they meant by what they've just said or what they've just done. And we definitely don't know why they've just said it or why they've just done it. Yeah, you can hazard a guess, but whenever you go there, you're in thin ice. Be very careful but what we say based on meaning and motive. One of the ways this kind of plays out, and I heard someone talk about this during the week, is, is that we tend to excuse ourselves and criticize or judge others in a similar situation. So let me give you a trivial example. If we're 10 minutes late to a meeting, right? If we're 10 minutes late to a meeting, we always, almost always blame external circumstances. So the traffic was awful. Road works everywhere car was playing up but when someone else is 10 minutes to a meeting we blame their internal character they are a mess (laughs) they're never on time they need to sort themselves out and i mean it's a simple illustration but it is interesting how we do that don't judge others why you don't always know the facts we definitely don't know the whole person only god does so just leave it with him Secondly, and this sort of follows on, but we shouldn't do it because it's impossible to be strictly impartial in judgment. You see, we are so easily swayed by instinct and by unreasonable 
or unreasoning reactions to people. We have this tendency, and maybe it is just part of human nature, we have this tendency to quickly jump to conclusions, to make up our minds about someone in a very short space of time, based on a minimum of detail and information. It may even be just what they're wearing. And lots of things come into play here. I realize there, there is bias. There is prejudice. There is self-righteousness. There's things like our background, our upbringing, our life experience. They heavily influence how we react to certain people and determine what we think of them and what we say about them. It's so hard to be impartial. It's virtually impossible. And therefore, to judge another person, to pass judgment, to reach a conclusion or pass a verdict, which is really what judgment is, it's never our place. Only a completely impartial person has the right to judge. Which is why only God can judge us. Before we move on to the, the third reason, which is maybe or probably the supreme reason based on these verses, let me, let me quickly make a, a comment about verse 2. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, it's another tricky verse. And it kind of implies that, see, when we go here, we set the standard. And that frightens the life out of me. It appears to indicate that we will be judged by the way we judge others. If I choose to judge others and be critical and jump all over their faults and their failures, then that attitude and mindset is going to come back and bite me. If that's the way I treat others, then it's pretty likely that's the way I'm going to be treated by others. It's that boomerang effect that Peterson in the message picks up on. And none of us likes that. None of us likes it. Alternatively, if you want to be dealt with mercifully, show mercy. Stretch this out even further to the bigger and greater reality regarding judgment. Ultimately, God is going to judge every single one of us sitting in this church this morning. If God was to judge me on the basis or with the measure that I am prone to judge others, where does that leave me? I'll say something more about that as we close, but for now, I believe Jesus uses this phrase, this in verse 2, to emphasize and stress the fact of just how dangerous and unwise it is to, do, to judge others. Why? Because you never do it in a vacuum. When you judge someone, there are consequences. Third reason, final reason, why we shouldn't judge others. And it comes out of this infamous verse, this rather ironic statement of Jesus about the speck of dust in someone else's eye and the dirty great plank in your own. And the third reason why we shouldn't judge others is this, no man, no person is good enough to judge anyone else. And there's two parts to this. At one level, it's a bit like the incident in John chapter 8 where a bunch of men want to condemn a woman who's caught in adultery. And Jesus says, okay, whoever has no sin in their lives, you throw the first stone. 
and everyone walks away. Because they realize, do you know something? We're in no position to condemn her, to judge her. Why? Because we have enough of our own stuff to deal with. And here in Matthew 7, Jesus is urging us to move away from judging others and focus on our own hearts and minds. And Jesus doesn't mince his words here. Whenever we veer into judgment territory, we risk becoming hypocrites. And Jesus encourages us to pay close attention to what's going on in our own lives rather than take issue and judge what's going on in someone else's life. And as kingdom people, we're meant to cry out with the psalmist, search me, O God, not them. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me. And as we recognize our need to seek forgiveness for the beams in our own eyes, the sin in our own hearts, then we're far more likely to be driven to our knees in confession rather than to our feet in judgment. Only the faultless have the right to pick faults and highlight the specks of dust in the eyes of another. And seeing none of us are there, none of us are faultless, none of us are perfect, then I believe none of us are in the place to judge another person. Need to finish. And as always, when it comes to the provocative teaching of Jesus, as I said earlier, I can't cover everything. And there, for many people here, there's lots of issues running around your heads regarding this whole subject. I know that. But let me finish with this thought. When it comes to judging others, we simply cannot give the last word on a person. But someone has to. Somebody has to. And that someone needs to be a perfectly just, impartial judge. And that someone is Jesus. The only one qualified to act as our judge. He knows the whole facts about the whole person. All things are visible to him. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. He is totally and completely impartial and fair. There are no planks, not even a speck. In his eye, he is sinless. And the incredible message of the gospel is that this judge, our judge, steps off his bench and sits in the defendant's chair. He who knew no sin became sin for us. What kind of judge sits in the place of the guilty? And what is his verdict as judge? The only one placed to be or to... What is his verdict as judge over us? Forgiven. Not guilty. Righteous. Complete. Son. Daughter. Friend. Free. Restored. Redeemed. Forgiven. To quote the entire verse of 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Church, we have been raised up with God's amazing grace. 
We have been given life and hope and a future. Let's not judge others. Instead, let's raise others up likewise. We have experienced grace. Let's show grace. We have been offered mercy. Let's offer mercy. And may God help us. Let's pray.